Last week I talked about the role of courage on this path and I explored some possible strategies to begin transforming fear into fearlessness. At the end of the talk I shared a poem by Michael Lunig called Love and Fear because I appreciated how clearly it highlighted the reciprocal relationship between love and fear. The more we can release the heart and the mind from the grip of fear, then the greater our capacity to experience love. Then last night, Brian shared that beautiful poem by the Polish-Lithuanian poet, which ended with the line, Falling in love is not the same as being in love, being able to love. That is something different. And I've been contemplating that line since I first heard it last night. And it seems to me that one of the distinctions between falling in love and being able to love is that being able to love takes courage and it takes practice. So tonight I wanted to explore the four Brahmavihara practices that the Buddha offered us practices to cultivate kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, because I see these as trainings that do help us to release fear and to become more fully able to love. So there's a similar connection between love and fear in the story that Winnie shared on Thursday during the afternoon Brahmavihara session. She gave us some context for the Metta Sutta that we've been chanting together some of the evenings. So apparently this Sutta was given by the Buddha to a group of monks on retreat who were being harassed by tree spirits. According to that legend, 500 monks had taken teachings from the Buddha and then they'd gathered to spend the rains retreat together, practicing what they just learned. And they thought that they'd found the perfect location for their retreat, which is described as being on the side of a mountain forming part of the Himalaya range. While its surface glittered like blue quartz crystal, it was embellished with a cool, dense, shady green forest grove and a stretch of ground strewn with sand resembling a net or a silver sheet and it was furnished with a clear spring of grateful, cool water. So it sounds pretty nice. Almost as good as here, perhaps, in terms of being a pleasant place to practice. But unfortunately, according to the story, this pleasant place was already inhabited by some tree spirits who, not surprisingly, didn't appreciate being displaced from their homes by these visiting monks. So the tree spirits tried to frighten the monks away by making dreadful noises and creating foul smells. That group of monks, unlike you all, soon lost their nerve and they went back to the Buddha for advice. And apparently that's when he taught them the Karaniya Metta Sutta as a way of overcoming fear and protecting them from harm. This strategy was successful because the monks went back to the forest grove. They chanted this sutta 
while cultivating the heart qualities that it describes. And this time they were welcomed by the tree spirits. The two groups were able to live together in harmony for the rest of their retreat. And the tree spirits actually protected the monks from other kinds of harm too. Now, we don't have to believe in tree spirits to understand what this story is illustrating, that practicing metta, kindness, is a powerful antidote to fear, one that benefits not only ourselves, but those around us too. So metta is a kind of antidote, a universal antidote to all harmful mind states. It helps us restore the heart and mind back to balance after it has been swept away by fear or lust or grief or anger and so on. And this theme of balance, of not getting lost in extremes, is something that we've been pointing to in all the meditation instructions that we've been giving throughout this retreat. This need for balance or highlighting of balance is woven all through the Buddha's teachings where it's often referred to as the middle way. And this understanding of the importance of the middle way came from the Buddha's own life experience before he attained awakening. So many of you are probably familiar with the story of his life, how as a young prince he spent many years lost in hedonism, basically indulging in every kind of sense pleasure that was available to him before at the age of, I think, about 27 or so, he realized that this wasn't really getting him anywhere. So then he went to the other extreme, He left the palace and he took up life as a spiritual ascetic, a wandering ascetic, practicing with all the renowned teachers of his day. And back then, it seems that most of the practices that were on offer involved pretty serious mortification of the body, basically different forms of self-torture. And the Buddha-to-be was a very dedicated and disciplined student, so he took these teachings on fully, getting to the point where he almost died before he realized that this wasn't perhaps the right approach. And the turning point came for him when he realized that it was pleasure in the form of mental pleasure that was the missing piece. And it's said that soon after this recognition, he experienced full awakening, complete freedom of heart and mind. And after that experience of awakening, the first discourse that he gave emphasized this need for the middle way, the balance between the extremes of, on one hand, self-mortification, and on the other, self-indulgence. I'm guessing that most of us are somewhat familiar with self-indulgence. It's the uh, tendency to take refuge in sense pleasures. It's fairly normal to put a lot of effort into chasing after pleasant experiences and manipulating the world out there to try and make ourselves happy. Which, as we know from our own experiences, that best only partly successful. 
temporarily successful. And the downside of that strategy is that it keeps us dependent on external conditions. We have to have external conditions be a certain way in order for us to be happy. So if we're dependent on things being a certain way, then we don't actually strengthen the inner qualities that will help us to meet life's inevitable challenges with more ease. And at times on retreat, we can see this dependence quite strongly. We want the food to be just like this and not like that. We want our rooms to be like this and not like that. We want other people to be like this and not like that. And we want ourselves to be like this and not like that. And all of these different preferences, sometimes when they aren't met, we can be surprisingly reactive. Has anybody noticed that? I know that's been true for me on retreat. Things that seem, in the scale of things, fairly minor. So this getting caught in self-indulgence is one extreme that only enhances our suffering rather than freeing us from it. The other extreme is self-mortification, which refers to the ascetic practices that were common in the Buddha's day. Spiritual practices that involve different ways of subduing the body. For example, taking vows to never sit down or sleep only on a bed of nails or severely restrict how much food one ate. Now, these kind of practices aren't part of our culture these days, fortunately. But one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has made the point that what is quite common these days is a kind of psychological self-mortification. There's a lot of social conditioning these days that makes many people very hard on themselves. Many of us have strong tendencies towards feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness, even self-loathing. Unconsciously or unconsciously, we often bring these same underlying tendencies into our meditation practice. So we turn the whole thing into yet another self-improvement project, one that's driven by self-judgment, anxiety, and fear. So how then do we find this middle way that the Buddha emphasized so much? Well, the Brahma-Vihara practices that I mentioned earlier are a very powerful support for bringing the heart and mind back into balance. These are qualities that we can train in as we have been doing on Thursday afternoons and in part one on Wednesday afternoons. So I think you all are familiar with at least the first of these four Brahma-Viharas, which is metta or kindness, because this is the one that usually gets the most attention. So tonight I also wanted to include the other three of the four, karuna or compassion, mudita or appreciative joy, and upekka or equanimity. And we can think of these as four slightly different flavors of love. And they're qualities that we can develop in formal meditation practice 
with the intention that over time, as the practice deepens and strengthens, they become more and more our default setting, our natural response to the world. So before I go further into uh, exploring each of them individually, I want to say a little bit about this term Brahma-vihara. It's uh, a difficult phrase to translate because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. And we don't really have any equivalent in our own culture. So it's often translated as heaven or heavenly instead, as in heavenly realms. And the second part of the word vihara means dwelling place. So Brahma-vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. So it's often translated as the divine abodes or the sublime abidings the heavenly realms or boundless states. And I'd like to highlight the aspect of vihara as being home because we can think of these four states as being our true home, a refuge for our hearts and minds. When our hearts and minds are free of the visiting afflictive states, when they're free of stress, distress, and difficulty, this is where we naturally abide or dwell in kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And there's a sense of ease there, just as in our physical home. Our physical home is where we can feel relaxed and comfortable and who we truly are. So the second aspect of this phrase, Brahma-vihara, that I'd like to highlight is the quality of boundlessness. Sometimes these four are called the four immeasurables because if we cultivate them fully, then they become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional without limits, which is a pretty high bar. So before that high bar starts to reinforce any pre-existing conditions of inadequacy, it's important to remember that these are practices and we need to start where we are and to have the patience to let these different flavors of love develop gradually through this process of training in them regularly. And this training begins with metta because metta is the foundation that the other three develop from. And metta is a Pali word that's usually translated into English as loving kindness. But some scholars and teachers have pointed out that uh, This is not such an accurate or helpful translation, partly because in English, loving kindness can sound a bit sort of sentimental or wishy-washy. And in English, the word love has such a huge range of different meanings. At one end of the scale, we we can talk about loving ice cream or pizza, for example. And then there's our obsession, cultural obsession with romantic love, 
the kind that we hear about in popular music or see in movies or read about in magazines and novels. And this kind of love is very exclusive. It's reserved for only one person. It's often very emotional, it's unstable, and often it doesn't last. So in many ways, this kind of love is the opposite of what this quality of metta is about, because it's so conditional. Whereas metta is a quality that we develop into unconditionality. So instead of loving kindness, some people translate metta as just kindness, kindness or friendliness. Because the Pali word metta comes from the same root as the word for friendliness, which is my tree. So hopefully approaching metta as a quality of friendliness or goodwill or benevolence might make it a bit more accessible. In fact, in some of the suttas, metta is translated simply as non-ill will. So hopefully that's a, a bit more easy to to grasp. We might not be able to imagine generating unconditional loving-kindness, but starting with non-ill-will might feel more possible. So in the beginning we want to start this gradual training with where metta might come most easily. And here at IMS, we're uh, fortunate to have the support of the natural environment, all the living creatures that we share this space with. And in my own practice, it's sometimes been easier to start metta by offering it to non-human beings, because our relationship to animals, to birds, to fish, even insects, is often less complicated than it is with human beings. So over the last few days, as I was putting this talk together, there were several occasions when I walked up the driveway here and I saw a flock of turkeys having some kind of meeting on the front lawn. Some of you may have noticed them. And each time I saw them, I noticed just this little natural and spontaneous pulse of warmth in relation to them. And I silently thanked them for giving me that little hit of metta. Perhaps you also noticed them, or even if you didn't, just hearing that description, if you close your eyes for a moment now and imagine or remember seeing that turkey gathering, can you feel just a little flicker of warmth at the heart center? Perhaps as a slight smile, or a sense of softening around the eyes. If that feels true, then let that register as just a trace of metta. And if it doesn't, don't worry. Maybe turkeys just aren't your thing and something else is. So metta is this foundation quality of kindness, of goodwill, of friendliness. And when that metta encounters suffering, it flowers naturally as the second Brahma-vihara, which is karuna, or compassion. 
And compassion is that willingness to turn towards pain, stress, distress, dukkha in all its forms, to meet that pain with kindness and, when possible, to help it release. And because of this intention of relieving suffering, compassion is not simply empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain. There's also an orientation to relieving that pain, if at all possible. So in last week's talk, I briefly mentioned Kuan Yin, the uh, archetype of compassion and how she's also known as she who hears the cries of the world. And it's said in the Zen tradition that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. And her male counterpart, Avalokiteshvara, is sometimes portrayed as having a thousand arms so that he can help the suffering multitudes. And in both those images, whether male or female, the compassion that they embody is not passive. There's a deep listening and there's a willingness to act. And we can see this in the way that uh, Kuan Yin in particular is often depicted in sculptures. You might have noticed the one in the upper walking room out there. She's uh, sitting with half of her body in meditation, this side, and the other half is poised, ready to spring into action, to relieve suffering when she can. So that balance of, uh, between passive and active is demonstrated in the way she's often portrayed. So people sometimes ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? And for me, metta is more of a generalized kind of goodwill or friendliness, while compassion is specifically directed towards pain and suffering. So there is a close relationship between the two, but energetically, compassion feels a bit different. So perhaps to get a sense of this, I'd like to use another bird image. This is... uh, one that I saw in a short video that a friend shared with me a while back. It was uh, posted on YouTube and it was one of those homemade videos just shot on someone's phone. It wasn't a professional video. And it was uh, shot through a window in winter uh, and it showed a, a small bird sitting on a metal railing outside the window. It looked like a sparrow And as the phone was um, filming this sparrow, it kept trying to fly off the railing, but it couldn't. And it took a few seconds to realize that the sparrow's tiny little feet were frozen onto the metal pipe. And so it was trapped. And then you see a pair of man's hands, pretty big men's hands, just coming in and holding the sparrow really gently so that it stops struggling. And then the man bends low and he starts breathing on the feet and on the metal pipe around the sparrow's feet. 
so that after quite a few breaths, the metal warms just enough so that the sparrow's feet are released. And then you hear him say, there you go, little birdie, go ahead, fly away. And so perhaps as you heard that story, you might have noticed a slightly different resonance in the body, the heart. Perhaps energetically just subtly different than the energy of metta. And this is part of the skill in training with these Brahma-viharas is to be able to tune in to the body, the heart, the mind, and notice how these different flavors of love show up for us, how they affect us. So the next one in the sequence of these four Brahma-viharas is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy appreciative joy, because traditionally the orientation here is towards sharing in other people's happiness or other beings' happiness. It's that capacity to feel gladness when we connect with someone else's good qualities or success or good fortune. And of these four Brahma-vihara practices, this one seems to be the poor cousin in terms of how much attention it gets. I actually did a survey on Dharma Seed talks a while back, and there was something like a tenth of the number of talks about uh, mudita than of metta. And I wondered if that's perhaps because in our dominant Western culture, with its competitiveness and its highly individualistic values, the idea of appreciating the success of others is not one that makes much sense. So for many people, this is the most challenging of the four Brahma-viharas. But if we persevere, we can find that the ability to celebrate other people's happiness does bring us many benefits. And we start to understand that Self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness rather than happiness. So some of you might know the famous lines from Shantideva, the Tibetan master, where he says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. Very simple on one level. But as we continue cultivating mudita, our sense of separateness, of isolation, of lack, starts to diminish. We start to feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. We can stop taking our problems quite so personally and start to recognize that just as we want to be happy, so do all beings. We more easily understand the truth of interconnectedness and anatta, not self. So in this way, mudita can directly support insight. So to get a felt sense of the flavor of mudita, I'd like to continue with the bird examples. I don't know if this still happens these days, but 
There have been times when I've been here on retreat at IMS and I've watched uh, people sitting out on the back veranda there feeding sunflower seeds to the little chickadees that like to gather around there. And sometimes if the person sits there quietly enough and still enough, Sometimes those little chickadees will even come and eat the seeds right out of the person's hand. And when I've watched this in the past, I've felt mudita for the little birds getting fed, perhaps in winter when there's not so much food around. But I've also felt mudita for the joy that the person who's feeding them obviously feels. So again, you might just notice if there's any trace of a flicker of mudita when you think of this possibility of letting chickadees eat sunflower seeds out of your hand. And again, just to see how it feels, perhaps slightly different from metta or compassion. So now we come to the fourth and last of these Brahmaviharas, which is upekka, usually translated as equanimity, which isn't a very common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard of it until I started to come into contact with these teachings. But it basically means balance of mind, evenness, steadiness, stability, composure. And it's that capacity to meet whatever we experience, pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, with non-reactivity. This non-reactivity, though, is not disconnected or a dull kind of non-responsiveness. True equanimity has a refined, energetic quality to it. We're open to whatever presents itself without moving into any form of wanting or not wanting. So it's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. And the Pali word upekka has its etymological roots in words associated with seeing, with vision. And it literally means to look over, which suggests being in a position to sort of see the bigger picture. So equanimity upekka links directly to clear seeing, to insight, vipassana. And sometimes I think of it as being like when we've climbed up a mountainside. Might have taken a lot of uphill effort, but at some point we finally get above the tree line and then we can look back where we came from and see it from a whole different perspective. There's an openness, a spaciousness, and an expansiveness. We're not stuck in a small viewpoint anymore. And I think of that spacious perspective as being a moment of freedom, of deep equanimity. So what kind of bird might we fit into the category of equanimity? This one was a little bit more of a challenge because by its nature, Equanimity, we don't want something that we move towards or away from. And it took me a little bit of uh, time to think of a bird that's found around here that might evoke this quality. And in the end, I thought of turkey vultures, those uh, 
birds of prey that you sometimes see spiraling up on thermal updrafts. These aren't cute the way chickadees are, and they're not aggressive the way magpies and some other birds are. So perhaps they don't immediately evoke pleasant or unpleasant. But perhaps when we see them soaring high up in the sky, we might feel a sense of respect or even awe. And we might be uh, reminded of equanimity's connection with seeing the bigger picture and with the spaciousness and the vastness of the sky that can put our own small struggles into perspective. So that's a pretty brief overview of what these four Brahmavihara practices are, and we'll probably be, be giving more talks, doing more guided meditations, so that we can practice directly with them later on in the retreat. For now, I wanted to just talk a bit more about how these four qualities are interrelated and to really encourage you to practice with all four of them. Because just as with a four-ply or four-strand piece of rope, when we have all four strands working together, there's a lot more strength than when there's just one strand to the rope. And working together, these four act as very effective protections against the hindrances and all afflictive mind states. So in my own practice, I got interested in the interrelationship between these Brahmaviharas a few years ago when I was on retreat at the forest refuge. And one of the teachers was talking about the nature of mind, you could say heart-mind, And he quoted Shabkar again. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And I'd been practicing the four Brahmaviharas quite intensively for a few weeks before I heard that. So when this image of the mind being like a flawless piece of crystal came up, that sense, that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the heart-mind is perfectly clear, it automatically responds in the appropriate way, becomes ceaselessly responsive. So just as a diamond naturally responds to light and sometimes flashes red or blue or yellow, so too the heart-mind that is clear naturally responds with kindness or compassion, joy or equanimity, depending on the circumstances. And as my mind was playing with this image of the diamond, I started to imagine a diamond shape with four points. And I saw metta located at the bottom point of this diamond and compassion and joy at the two side points and equanimity at the top. Because metta is the foundation that the other three emerge from. And when metta connects with pain, it moves into compassion. So compassion was 
one side of this diamond shape. On the other side, when metta connects with what's going well, with happiness, it flowers as mudita. So compassion and mudita sit at opposite points, opposite sides of the diamond. Then when compassion and mudita are perfectly in balance, they come together as equanimity. The capacity to be with life's 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows. So that's just one way of thinking how these four qualities can interrelate. In some traditions we might think of uh, equanimity as being at the bottom, as being the foundation that gives a quality of stability to these other three qualities. So whichever way you arrange them doesn't matter so much as being able to know how we can bring the qualities back into balance when they may have got off balance in some way. For example, if the metta starts to feel a bit dry or superficial, we might change to compassion practice for a while to give it a little more gravitas or depth. In fact, for some people, starting with compassion is the way in. And that was true for me. I struggled with metta for quite a while before I uh, was offered compassion as a practice. And that made sense to me because I got that people were suffering. And after I'd been able to develop compassion for a few years, then I came back to metta and was able to work with metta too. So sometimes when compassion um, becomes, you know, with all the suffering in the world, when we open up to it, at times we can start to feel a little overwhelmed. And that can be a signal that it might be time to consciously turn towards mudita, to turn and notice, to take in what is going well. Because even in the most challenging situations, if we really look, we can usually find some kind of silver lining to the cloud. At other times, mudita can turn into a kind of giddy or fizzy, slightly ungrounded attachment to pleasantness. And then we might need to bring in some equanimity to balance it out. In fact, equanimity is useful for any kind of imbalance. So what I just touched into in the tradition are known as the near and the far enemies of these qualities. So each one of them in the classical teachings has what's called a near enemy and a far enemy. And the far enemy is the opposite of the quality that we're trying to develop. So for example, with metta, goodwill, the far enemy is ill will. For karuna or compassion, the far enemy is cruelty. For mudita, appreciative joy, the far enemy is envy. And for upeka, equanimity, the far enemy is reactivity. Then the so-called near enemies are qualities that in a way masquerade as the one we're trying to develop. But when we look more carefully, we recognize that they're just a little bit off in some way. So for example, with metta or goodwill, 
the near enemy is a kind of dependent attachment or conditional love or even sentimentality. For karuna or compassion, the near enemy is pity. It's a kind of distancing or looking down on somebody who's suffering. For mudita, appreciative joy, the near enemy is exuberance, giddiness, or that ungrounded effusiveness. And for upeka, or equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. And again, because all of these four Brahma-viharas do work together to support and strengthen each other, we can, when we realize that we might have slid into enemy terrain, that we can turn to one of the other four Brahma-viharas as an antidote. To get a sense of how this works, I'd like to share... Uh, a piece of writing by the Dharma teachers Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Some of you might know Caroline as the resident teacher here at the Forest Refuge. And I really appreciate the way she and Paul Burroughs put together this arrangement of the Brahma-viharas to highlight the connections between them all. They say metta, or kindness, is the love that connects It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So you can hear in that description how each of the four qualities can be used to overcome some kind of unhelpful mind state and to balance the others out. And you may have noticed how each quality slides quite naturally into the next. And in the end, we return again to metta. If equanimity slides into disconnection, It's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, working through each of these qualities over and over again. A spiraling journey around and through all four Brahma-viharas to create a beautiful force field, ultimately, of unconditional love. 
And again, if this concept of unconditional love sounds daunting or even impossible, it's important to remember that these are practices, they're trainings. And the good news is that because of neural plasticity, it is possible to literally, literally reshape our hearts and minds. The Buddha himself recognized this possibility shortly before before his awakening, after he'd spent many years practicing mindfulness of mind. Through careful observation of his own heart and mind, he understood how repeatedly thinking certain types of thoughts strengthens them, so that over time they become our default setting. So we want to be careful about what kind of thoughts we're strengthening. Because in the Dveda Vitaka Sutta, two kinds of thoughts, he's reported to have said, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, one abandons renunciation and cultivates thoughts of sensual desire, and then the mind inclines to sensual desire. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of ill will, upon thoughts of cruelty, one has abandoned non-cruelty to cultivate cruelty, and one's mind inclines to cruelty. So what the Buddha is pointing to here is what modern neuroscientists are only just starting to catch up with, that because of neural plasticity, repeatedly thinking in certain ways actually physically shapes our minds. Hence the aphorism, neurons that fire together, wire together. And I read somewhere a few years ago that uh, they did autopsies on the brains of people who suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was possible to see physical grooves in the brain from this repeated thinking certain types of thoughts. That might be a slightly extreme example, but we all are creating tracks in our own minds. And the good news is that we can change these pathways. We can strengthen the beneficial pathways and withdraw energy from the unbeneficial ones. And this is what these Brahma-Vihara practices help us to do. So there's a lot more that I could say about these practices, but hopefully in the service of metta, I don't want to go too long tonight. So I'd like to close with just a a real-life example of how, with practice, metta can become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. A few years ago now, I was helping out at a retreat center, supporting the staff with whatever they needed in uh, managing the retreats. And during one retreat, there was a yogi who experienced quite a serious medical episode. We had to call an ambulance for them, and I was asked to accompany them to hospital. 
And for the first little while in the ambulance, this person wasn't really conscious. But after some time, they, they kind of came to and they sat up and looked around a bit, looked a bit confused, looked at me and looked at the ambulance man and said something like, I don't know where I am, I, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know who you are, but you're very kind people, thank you. And eventually we got to the hospital and we were waiting in the emergency department because the person needed all kinds of tests. And during this time, the, they had quite a few more um, urgent situations come up and I was holding the person's hand while all these different things were going on around them. But after a while, I realized that this person didn't actually need much reassurance. They were surprisingly at ease, even as they kept drifting in and out of consciousness. And each time they did come back to consciousness, I could sense that they were getting a bit more tired. But still, each time they came back to alertness, they just looked at me and whispered, thank you, thank you. That was all the energy that they had to say in the end. But that visit to hospital, it stayed with me. It was moving to me because it seemed that that person was so grounded in metta that even when their body was in crisis and their mind wasn't fully functioning, their heart was still oriented to metta. And that example really inspired me to try to establish the Brahma-viharas in my own heart, my own mind, in a way as fully as that person so that hopefully no matter what challenging circumstances I might encounter in the future, this diamond heart of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity might still shine out. So may we all abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety. And may we maintain well-being in ourselves. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.